too much. Let's talk a little bit. You don't eat much, you don't talk much. <laughs> I'm just listening. This is the Just Listening Podcast with pizza artist Eric John. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show today. This is Just Listening, and I am Eric John. And before we get into it, of course, I've got to tell you about the absolute best artisan soda in the entire world, uh, Yacht Club Soda. Go to yachtclubsoda.com. That's yacht like the boat. Yacht, Y-A-C-H-T, clubsoda.com, and uh, check out all the amazing flavors they have. They've got blue raspberry, lemon lime, pineapple, strawberry, root beer, uh, cream. They've got regular orange. Uh, it, the list goes on and on. They've got some incredible flavors. And uh, you're just not going to find this stuff in, in in your local supermarket. It's that good. Uh, John Scambato and his family have been, have been making this soda for more than 100 years. Um, and uh, those of us who live in Rhode Island know it well. It's the official state soda of the state of Rhode Island. But you don't have to live in Rhode Island anymore to enjoy this amazing soda. You can go to yachtclubsoda.com. As long as you live in the United States, you can order this soda for yourself. You can mix. You can match. You can pick whatever flavors you want. John will ship it to you. So go to yachtclubsoda.com today and order some for yourself. Okay, on the show today, very special guest. So uh, anyone who's been listening to the show um, and, and certainly anybody who knows me knows what a huge fan I am of the show Band of Brothers. Um, and uh, recently, uh, of course, recently had uh, Professor Jared Frederick on the show um, a few weeks back now. Uh, we talked a lot about the show Band of Brothers. And uh, it's, it's something it's a show I just I keep coming back to. You know, I think about it a lot. I think about that show, the stories, the men, um, what they went through, their stories. Um, so it, it's a real treat today for me to uh, have this gentleman on my show. Um, one of the characters in the show featured very prominently um, was a, a man named George Luz, who uh, who's from Rhode Island, who's from West Warwick, Rhode Island, and uh, settled back here in Rhode Island after the war um, and, and led an amazing life. And so I'm very happy to welcome his son, uh, George Luz Jr. on the show, uh, who does tours with uh, the Stephen Ambrose Tour Company. Um, they take people over to Europe and they go retracing the steps of Easy Company, um, you know, the different battles they fought and stuff. It's, it's, it's really amazing, the stuff that they do. And uh, he's been doing that for a little while now. And he also has a great presentation that he's been um, giving all around the country uh, called Through My Father's Eyes, where he talks about his father's experiences during World War II um, and, and has some really great stuff in there. There's some really cool, never-before-heard audio clips of his dad um, who, who sadly uh, was killed um, in an in a, in a industrial accident um, before the show was able to air, so he never got to see it. Um, but anyway, without further ado, I mean, I'll let George talk about all this stuff. So, George, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Well, this is really a pleasure for me, George. Um, and uh, just for the listeners, um, I, I had the pleasure of meeting you recently in uh, in my not my, it's not my hometown of, of Johnston, Rhode Island, but that is where our, my family's bakery is, is in Johnston. And uh, you gave a great talk there at the Historical Society about your dad, about the uh, Easy Company, the the 506, and, uh, and um, you know, this generation of Americans who... I mean, I have a really strong affinity for. Um, 
and so I, you know, I think my first question is, I kind of want to start at the at the beginning to an extent here, um, especially in regards to your dad. Um, did you did your dad talk a lot about his childhood and how how he grew up and what it was like growing up during the depression and things like that? Well, you know, I think you know, like you said, growing up in the depression, my dad, like most others, maybe like your grandfather, you know, they did whatever they could do because they had big families. My my dad was one of ten. And uh, my mom was one of 12. So my dad quit school. I think it was in the ninth grade to get a job. And, uh, you know, there was lots of things that they could do, you know, related to working in a mill. But uh, there was other opportunities, too, where he uh, would carry ice uh, because back in the day they didn't have refrigerators. They had ice boxes. So. Uh, he worked for an ice guy where he would carry ice up, you know, several stairs, flights of stairs. Or uh, the little town we grew up in in West Warwick, there was a little area called Arctic. It was where all the shopping was. And um, back in the day, they would have guys walking up and down advertising. And they had these kind of plywood type boards that they would put around themselves one in the front and one in the back probably held on by a piece of rope (laughs) and they would walk up and down the street as advertising so so there was all kinds of creative things they did Uh, he also um, was a shoeshine boy as well so they uh, that generation certainly was very resourceful yeah, I recently um, spoke with uh, Professor Jared Frederick, who um, who who I know, you know. So for my listeners, George does uh, a lot of tours with uh, uh, the Ambrose Tour uh, company and takes people over to Europe and stuff. And and I'm going to ask George about that more towards the end of the interview. Um, but uh, Professor Frederick also uh, does a lot of these tours, and um, when I he remarked that. You know, he likes to think of this generation as the hardiest generation, um, you know, that they they really had an ability to kind of face whatever came at them, um, face any obstacle and, and do it in, in a really, a really amazing way with with humor and with personality and, uh, you know, to use a cliche grit, um, you know, do you think there was also maybe something to the fact that so many of these guys, your dad included, uh, that that they grew up in these big families with so many brothers and sisters? Do you think that that family dynamic in and of itself, too, maybe had something to do with why this generation also was so, you know, they seemed so easy to uh, it was so easy for them to adjust to like any crisis? Well, they certainly were so much more resilient. And they did have that can-do mentality. And I noticed that a lot with my dad, the men he served with, and I'm sure his brothers and sisters, because there really wasn't any safety net back in the day. So if you didn't do it or get it done collectively as a family or when he joined the military as a unit, it didn't get done. So they certainly did have that spirit that uh, I think hopefully we all got a little bit of a little piece of that. 
as we walk through life. I hope so. I so I hope so. And you know, it occurred to me that my generation. So you mentioned, you know, maybe my grandfather. So yeah, my my grandfather. Uh, both my grandfathers were, you know, in World War II. Um, you know, in my generation, the the millennial generation really is the last generation that will have any real memory of these guys when they were alive. Um, you know, and. For, for, for people who are listening to this podcast who are younger than that, you know, who are, who are maybe still in their 20s, um, you know, it, it's it's it is really sad for those of us who knew these guys. Um, I knew them, of course, as old men, mostly. Um, but, man, they were so entertaining and they were so funny and they had so much wisdom and uh, and and they were such characters. Um, and of course, your dad um, you know, he's, he's kind of in, in the show Band of Brothers. He is the sort of ultimate character i mean he's just um he, he's singular um you've mentioned before that you thought you know that the actor rick gomez just did a phenomenal job portraying your dad what, what was it that he really captured about your dad's personality do you think that that really stood out well i think what uh what he really did capture was the 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 humor and then the different times where humor was necessary, and uh, he was able to kind of interject that into different environments. And I remember Jack Foley, who was depicted in the series, he was an officer, and we actually saw uh, Jack Foley, if you remember, on the attack on Foy when Lieutenant Dyke kind of froze and then Spears took over. Well, Foley was off to the left, but Jack was a terrific guy. I got a chance to really get to know him after my dad passed away. And he just said, you know, every unit needed a George Luz. <laughs> and uh, so my dad just had an inherent quality about himself that really just helped the guys get through some of the more difficult things that they had to experience. Well, it also seems like he helped the guys get through the training as well. Um, I think one thing that the the book Band of Brothers, I think, does a much better job of than the series is really getting the reader to understand the extent of the training. Um, you know, one thing I didn't really realize in watching the series is that these guys trained for twice as long as they were actually in the war. Um, did your dad talk about the training aspect of it very much? Well, you know, he, he just provided the, you know, the back the backdrop as far as the rigors of it. And it wasn't until, you know, when you look at, when you look at success of that generation, so many of them just looked at it as a very matter of fact thing. They didn't feel as though they were, they, there wasn't any more of an accomplishment than all of the rest of the guys. Actually there was because their training was, quite a bit more rigorous but you know he didn't really come home boasting about how great his unit was or any of that kind of stuff he was very proud of his unit but you know he wasn't that kind of a guy that would just say hey we we won the war and we all know it took a collective it took a collective um uh, energies from 16 million american men and women to win that war along with all of our allies but yeah, so he didn't really get into the specifics of it, but you're right, as we read more and more about it, whether it was in the book Band of the Brothers 
or if it was, uh, you know, in um, uh, in any of the books that were written, whether it was Shifty's book, and I, I love Shifty's book, or Buck Compton's book, or some of the books that Marcus Brotherton had written. Um, you know, there's just quite a bit in there that we can learn and glean from, and I'm very fortunate. I've got um, Walter Gordon's interview with Stephen Ambrose, and he really outlines from Walter's beginning of the war to the end of the war. And um, so Walter gets into it pretty deep. And <laughs> Walter was one of the big rugged guys, and you saw him in the series. Sobel was uh, always jumping on certain guys or everybody, and, and Walter was one of them that he jumped on quite a bit. But Walter had said uh, he, he lost weight drop by drop. And because uh, he was kind of a big rugged guy. But, yeah, the training was so much more difficult uh, that we can see now or in what they experienced. And um, and you're exactly right. They trained for the better part of two years. So you think about it, you know, my dad came in in August of 1942 and uh, D-Day was June of 2000. Uh, 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 June of 1944. So, um, and then, you know, the war ended, you know, around a year later, whatever it was, uh, you know, sometime in May of the, of 45. So, um, and then you look at some of the other guys, uh, gals that started and they were back in Africa and Algeria and all those other places. They came in, in the, in the forties, early forties. So, you know, my dad's unit, you know, they were targeted to do special things, and they certainly did. But there's certainly other other guys out there, guys and gals, that served a heck of a lot longer in combat than my dad did. It really is. It really is remarkable. And, um, you know, you mentioned Sobel. You know, in the show, um, you know, there's, there's a moment in the show where they're running up to Koa, and... Um, Sobel kind of, you know, he's riding them as he usually did. And this look kind of comes over his face where, where the men sort of start singing together. And they're really it's sort of a, uh, it's, it's a, a real changing point, uh, a real pivot point where they really are starting to coalesce as a unit. And this look comes over his face that, that said to me, and of course, this is Schwimmer's uh, performance, you know, but still it, it said to me that um, much of what he was doing um, in the training and being as hard as he was, was on purpose. Um, you know, and of course some of his, you know, his weaknesses of his personality ended up getting the better of him eventually. But to what extent do you think, uh, Sobel's training in particular, um, you know, saved, saved lives in the end? Well, to a man, uh, they all would, recognize the fact that Sobel was a galvanizing force and really did make those guys who they were. And you're, and you're right to point out that, you know, being a leader during combat certainly wasn't one of his fortes, but indeed, yeah, to yeah. a man that, uh, and even my dad, I've heard my dad say it as well, that, uh, you know, the reason that they were as tough as they were was because of Sobel. And, and actually, Walter Gordon, like I said, back to Walter in his tape with Ambrose, he said, 
you know, if we could survive this, we could survive anything in the war. And that was kind of Sobel really put those guys through uh, through the ringer in more ways than one. You know, one of the things that always strikes me about uh, the story, um, especially in regards to Sobel, and I guess it war in war in general, and you could probably say life in general, but how you know any one event or any one thing can can cause such a uh, an effect of your entire future. You know, and it, it, it sort of occurs to me in watching the the, the show and reading the book that um, you know had Sobel not had easy company taken away from him uh he would have been the one in the plane instead of lieutenant Meehan. um and he would have you know he would have perished instead of lieutenant Meehan. of course you could also say the reverse you could say you know it was you know the uh lieutenant Meehan being being given easy company that that led to his uh demise um and i'm sure you could go on and on like that and second guess things and wonder what if uh, a million times and it's probably fruitless but it does sort of speak to i think the just the 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 luck in a lot of ways that that, that is needed to survive such an ordeal. Um, they, your dad was referenced in the show as, in particular, as being uh, particularly lucky. Did your dad feel like he was um, as well trained as he was? That he was also just very lucky to make it out of there. Well, I think they all did. When you look at the numbers. Uh, you know, I just got back from, you know, my recent tour and um, there's a photograph, there's a photograph of the men in Caproon. And I, I think they came out of Tokoa with uh, maybe 140 guys. And in that final photograph on that hillside in, um, in Caproon, I think out of the 140 or so guys, I think the, in the, somewhere in the high 30s, 39 or 40 of the original Tacoma men are in that photograph. So, and that's attributed to guys who were killed in action and then other guys who were just wounded out. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, the guys that made it all the way through, like my dad, certainly do feel uh, blessed to have made it all the way through with the scars of what they saw and the scars of some of their wounds and purple hearts and things like that. Um, but yeah, it certainly was, he, he certainly was pretty fortunate to, to come through the war with uh, just a couple of bangs here and a couple of twists there and, and things like that. Um, you had mentioned about, about Sobel and uh, me and, you know, I never really thought about that. That's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting point of view that it would have been Sobel that went down and not me. And it's it is it, it it's it's crazy to think about it how it just and, and you know and it's sort of a similar it's a very similar uh, sort of situation as to the you know the decision your dad made that you you've talked about in previous interviews um, to to go to his own um, a, a slip trench I believe it was that he dug in Bastogne. As opposed to um, going into uh, Skip Muck and Pentawa's um, uh, foxhole, of course, their foxhole getting a direct hit from a from a mortar, uh, killing them both. Um, you know, and uh, and of course, in the show, it's dramatized a bit more than that. 
Um, which is strange thinking, you know, why do you need to dramatize it even more than that? That's already plenty of drama. Um, but you know, even that, just that one decision, um, you know, I think, I think you mentioned in a previous, uh, interview and in your presentation that, um, your dad had written, uh, that he thanked God for, for being a thick headed Portuguese. Um, and I've got some Portuguese blood myself. So, uh, so I know, I know all about it. Um, and, uh, but like, this, you could, I feel like you could just go on and on like that. Um, you know, your dad, for instance, the, the other thing I was thinking of too, was I, that I didn't really think about was that, uh, your dad talked about how, um, it took him almost all night on D-Day to get to, to get back to where he needed to be. And as a result, he, w- he wasn't there during the assault on Bray Court Manor. Um, and, you know, had he been at that assault, who knows how, what might've happened or what would have gone differently. Um, you know, it's just, you could go yeah. on and on like that. It's incredible. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about too, um, was, you know, your dad seemed like to be a, a real favorite of, uh, of many of the other guys. Um, were there, were there any guys in particular your dad really gravitated towards and, and even, um, you know, later on in life, um, that he, that he really kept a particular close bond to? Well, you know, when you look at, when you look at the reunion photos, there's a lot of my dad and Frank Bracani together. And, uh, you know, and actually my dad, he was, he was tight with all of the guys, but I think him and Frank during the war, and you kind of saw that in the series during the war and after the war, they were a bit closer. Uh, I, I think that would have been the guy if I was to guess, uh, just because of, uh, understanding and listening to my dad talk about Frank. And then seeing how many pictures uh, at the reunions where they would always be sitting at the same table. You know, I, I, I mentioned that um, I'd, I'd recently spoken to uh, Professor Frederick, who, who wrote a book about uh, Major Winters and um, um, all of his private correspondence during the war. Um, what was your what was your dad's uh, feeling about Winters? How did he feel about the man? Well, you know, my dad had a great uh, relationship with Winters. And I think, you know, uh, that evening at the Johnston Historical Society, you got a chance to listen to my dad talking about jumping into Normandy. And um, and as, as my dad is up on stage talking, <laughs> Winters interrupts him and my dad stops him and said, Hey, you can't tell me what to do anymore. I'm not in the army anymore. <laughs> I know, so, so, so anyway, so that was, <laughs> that was a, a, a back and forth between my dad and winters. My dad had a great relationship with winters. And then at the, at the end of, at the end of that conversation, I mean, at the end of, um, that, that, um, book opening, you know, we'll, we'll play the clip afterwards. And then, you know, my dad talks about, you know, what it meant to be in the army and things like that. And, and winters without missing a beat, when he sent out that follow-up letter to all of the guys in the unit, he would write little bits. He would type the whole thing out and everybody would get 
you know, the whole thing. But then he would write little personal vignettes to each guy. And uh, so um, uh, Winters uh, went back to that final comment that my dad said at the that at the uh, book opening and just said, so let me hear it again now, George. <laughs> Did you say that actually the three years you spent in the military were the best three years of your life? So he kind of was turnabout as fair play. <laughs> and um, but, but the one thing, not the one thing, many things I noticed about, about uh, Winters and his relationship with my dad, was when my dad was uh, was killed when he passed away. Winters stayed in constant contact with my mother, as far as all the things that were going on related to Easy Company, the reunions and all of that kind of stuff. So, any piece of information that he would have sent out to my dad normally, he made sure that my mom had gotten it too. And he probably went a little bit more above because he looked at the men, especially the t- original Tacoma men, and he looked at their wives, and in the case of my mom, the widow, and uh, so he took that upon himself to make sure that my dad would be looking down and thanking him for making sure my mom was in the loop on all of this information that was so important to, to my dad. He really did seem like a remarkable man and um, a very, you know, a very faithful man. Um, can you speak to, you know, what role, um, I don't want to say religion per se, but just what role um, the, the faith of these men had in getting them through the war and just how they led their lives after the war? Um, you know, was your, was your dad a particularly uh, faithful guy? I mean, I know many of them at the time were. Um, certainly more so than today. Um, but I am, I'm very curious about that was, you know, cause Winters was, uh, very, very, uh, well known for being a, a God fearing man. Was your dad also like, uh, similarly like that? Oh yeah. Well, you know, we, um, you know, so his, his parents were uh, Portuguese immigrants from the Azores. And, uh, so they all were Catholic and so they all were, they all had faith in a higher being than themselves and in, in God. And uh, so we we were raised the same way, and so we went to church every Sunday. And uh, kind of a a side note of sorts, my my brother, who's older than I am, he used to have a paper route. So anyway, uh, when the paper route was all done, um, my dad would take me to church, and we would go to this church in West Warwick. I think it was St. Joseph's or St. John and Paul in Arctic. And we would go to six o'clock mass in the morning on Sunday. Oof. <laughs> and I never knew why. And we would never sit down. We would stand in the back. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah, we would stand in the back. And as soon as communion was over, <laughs> we would leave. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I never understood why. So then I was talking to my brother many years later, my brother Steve, and I said, so what was up with the six o'clock mass? And then, you know, standing up in the back, and he said, well, when I was going to church with dad at six o'clock, I had a paper route. 
So my dad would, they would go to church 6 a.m. And by, you know, 620, 625, <laughs> uh, you know, 625, 630, man, they're out out of church and they're delivering papers. Oh, wow. So that, that was why. <laughs> that's why. That's why I got the, the duty. So my mom would go to church with my sister at a normal hour. And then my dad and I, we would go at 6 a.m. for some crazy hour. I don't know. I don't know why. You know, I would be great to ask him that question now. But then after after mass, we would go. There was a little drugstore called Cardin's Drugstore. And we'd go to Cardin's Drugstore. And we never really got like eggs and sausage and bacon and toast. And we, we never got that. I just remember getting uh, coffee, milk, and a donut, or something like that. <laughs> that was like the big splurge. Well, you George. can't beat coffee, milk, right, George? I mean, we know yeah. that. Uh, you know, every every single other person listening to this right now who's not who is not from Rhode Island and has never been here has no idea what that is. Of course, yeah. it is. It is uh, especially um, in our childhoods. It is fondly remembered as a quite a treat. Um, yeah, so that was the big that was the big thrill. We'd either go to the Cardin's drugstore or we would oh if we really was adventurous, we'd go to Miss Cranston Diner, you know. <laughs> that was, and have the, that was a real the, treat. That's right, all the way to Cranston and have the same thing, a, a coffee milk with a with a donut. <laughs> my uh my aunt Rose, we I'd go to church with her sometimes growing up and I was uh, I grew up Catholic as well. Um you know, of course being a good Italian boy. And um, and she would she would take us to McDonald's after after church uh, to get uh, some hash browns. And uh, she was would always be very excited to partake in the um, the 50 percent off senior discount that they had at the time <laughs> at McDonald's. So I'm pretty sure that's why we went to McDonald's. But of course, we didn't care. We, we loved it anyway. Um, how did how did your parents meet? Well, my dad's good buddy uh, was named Tony, and he lived down the road a little bit. Now, my so my dad and, and his buddy Tony both went in the army around the same time. Naturally, uh, you know, my dad was airborne, and I think Uncle Tony was uh, was an, an infant, infantry unit. And um, so Tony had, let's say, he had twelve brothers and sisters. He was one of 12. And like I said, my dad was one of 10. Now, my dad, when he got back from the war, he met one of um, his good buddy Tony's sisters. And there was, a, I think it was about a five-year difference in age between uh, my dad and Tony's sister. Now, when you're, when you're 18... And um, your your buddy's sister is thirteen. That doesn't make any sense. But when you're twenty five, and your buddy's sister is twenty, that looks a bit different. Of course. So uh, so that's kind of what happened. Was uh, he met Tony's sister? He, he always probably knew you know all of Tony's brothers and sisters, but they were all a different age and younger, and you know that kind of a thing. So so that's how they met was um was because his good buddy had a had a cute sister named Del or Delvina. <laughs> and you know, so anyway. There was a funny moment, George, in the um 
20th anniversary symposium, which uh, if anyone listening, if you're interested in Band of Brothers, if you're interested in World War II at all, uh, go to YouTube and check out the uh, the 20th anniversary of Band of Brothers symposium. It's all online. Uh, George is is a is a part of it um, on one of the panels. And there's a really funny moment between you and uh, and the actor that portrayed your dad, Rick Gomez, where uh, you're talking about your mom and you say uh that in in talking about your dad that she didn't pull any punches um which i i thought was hilarious and i i feel like i know exactly what that means but i I was i felt like i need to ask you what did you mean by that oh as far as mom had no filter (laughs) exactly right yeah mom had no filter yeah it was funny yeah as as she got older filter got less and less well i'm thinking about my own grandmother george is is really why it's so funny to me yeah, yeah, mom was, she was pretty feisty for sure. <laughs> she certainly was pretty feisty. So, but, uh, well, hey, I'm glad you enjoyed that, um, that uh, symposium. Uh, you know, the 20, it was the 21st anniversary, you know, actually the 20th anniversary got, got, um, got squashed because of COVID 19. Oh, right. I didn't even, uh, I didn't even consider that. You're right. Oh. Yeah. And then that, that was terrific. I, I really, you know, we were the third, they had two panels in the morning, and then the, we were the third panel, first panel in the afternoon. And um, so I'm talking with uh, Chris Langlois, who is uh, Doc Rowe's grandson. And I'm saying, man, those were, you know, at lunch, uh, I said, man, those were two fantastic panels. And I said, I said, man, we're going to have to really step up our game here, you know, to compete against the the first two we you know we want to really do have a great showing and and i think we did i think we did but it was a very comprehensive view and yeah i i suggest anybody who's got seven hours to burn or so to um do it in bits a uh, little bits uh but it was it was terrific and there was there was so much so much uh content there you know and i i've got this I've got this article from one of the guys who was there. He had written a piece. His name is John Arloff, and he had wrote he had wrote an article. And this was back, jeez, uh, this was almost twenty years afterwards. That was, well, it was two thousand eighteen. And he said, "Why Band of Brothers lasts." A perspective from one of the writers, and it's just a couple of brief little paragraphs. I'd like to share with oh, you. Oh, please, yeah, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, and it's. So it's a true story. When Tom Hanks told me and the other screenwriters of Band of Brothers, he was going to place interviews with the guys, as we call them, in front of our episodes. And we all howled what a terrible, awful idea it was. It would make everything that forwarded, that followed, look like Hollywood reenactments. Just actors in costumes with toy guns. We were so wrong. The interviews gave everything that followed a gravitas, a patina of reality that drove home in a fashion better than any of our writing could do, that this was real life. This happened to real men, and many didn't make it home. But ultimately, I think Band of Brothers' endurance can be attributed to two things. The inherent power of Easy Company's story and the commitment of every one of the thousand or so people who worked for years to get the story right. 
but mostly Band of Brothers succeeded in living up to its ambitious title, Men and Now Women Who Fight for Many Reasons, but mostly they fight, kill, and die for their friends in the next foxhole. And, um, yeah, John was nominated for an Emmy in his writing, and um, uh, he's done such a great job. And and uh, it's just, you know, he really kind of capsulated the whole thing there, talking about everything relating to that in just such a nice, concise way. You know, there really is no other piece of entertainment um, that I can think of where the people who are a part of it um, – still have such a strong connection with each other uh, so many years later. I mean, of course, there's things that are made that people love, uh, you know, and passed down from generation to generation. But you rarely hear about, um, you know, the actors, the costume people, the writers, the producers who who all seem to have such a, a close bond even to this day. Uh, I know that the uh, the actors started having their own reunion sort of modeled after um the reunions that the guys used to have. Um, do the do the families uh, still get together on a regular basis, George? Oh yeah, yeah, we do. Um, and, and back to the actors, really quick. You're right, sure. Michael Cutlets. Uh, excuse me, Michael Cutlets. Uh, you know, out in L.A., they uh, they've been getting together every year since the series, and uh, they are just fantastic, uh, great ambassadors for not only the men of Easy Company, but I think for for the guys who served during World War II, you know, their, their passion for history. And like you say, they really took this job to heart. And so many other actors, after the, after the job is done and the check is clear, um, they don't give another thought to that particular work. But this work here was just so much more meaningful for the actors. And I always like to give them the accolades that they deserve for being such great ambassadors. But about 10 or 12 years ago, the men, it was at the reunion in Kansas City. Paul Rogers was the host. And he uh, said that um, in kind of the group meeting, he just said, okay, kids, we're not going to be able to do this anymore. Herb Suet was actually running the the uh, reunions, and he just said, uh, as, as they constituted now, we're not going to have, we're not going to be able to do it. They were just getting too old, and so they said it's going to be your responsibility to take over from here. So what we did was, you know, we just we had our own little meeting afterwards, and and um, so the the next year, Scotty Gordon, Walter Gordon's son said, um, okay, so next year we'll have a reunion in uh, Louisiana. And then uh, Gordy Carson's son, Gary Carson, said, let's do one in, um, in Seattle. And, and uh, Hack Hansen's daughter, Kristen, said, let's do one in Chicago. And we did one in Tacoa. Uh, last year was in Fort Benning, Georgia. So we've just continued to do this and uh, stay together, connected. And Actually, we um, they had a kind of a mini reunion. Um, let's see, two nights ago. Yeah, two nights ago they had a mini reunion in um, in the uh, Seattle, Washington, in Washington, where you had Malarkey's kids, Buck Compton's uh, daughters, um, the Carsons, 
And uh, C.T. Smith, who wasn't depicted in the series, but he was a dear friend of my dad's. So about a half a dozen of the kids got together. Actually, it was kind of neat in a way. I was very, very thoughtful. I had a birthday on July 24th, which I think is two days ago. That was like two days ago, George. (laughs) Two days ago, Happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So while they were having this mini reunion, um, they called me up and they sang me happy. <laughs> oh, that's they sang nice. me happy birthday, man! So it was really, really cool. You had, you know, Don Malarkey's uh, daughter Marianne, and um, but yeah. So this year we're going to get together actually in Newport, Rhode Island. Oh no way! When's that going on? Oh, uh, I don't. I'm not sure of the date. It's sometime in October. Wow. Well, that's but hey, um, that's nice for you, George. You don't have to. <laughs> Have to I don't have to fly far. anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> I know it. And there's a lot of. I, it's, so, are you hosting it? Yeah, yeah. Well, my sister and I will be the the hosts, and uh, you know, within the uh, within the family, everyone has kind of has a skill set. So there's, um, you know, the Don Malarkey's daughter will come over. Chris Langlois will come up. He'll play a role. He's kind of the president of the, the association. Uh, Gene Garnier, uh, Wild Bill's uh, son, and his. Uh, granddaughter uh, Debbie uh, play a role as well and um, actually I, I just like to show up myself you know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's what I like to do is show up is but, show up well, uh, yeah yeah well, I like George, to George you know it occurs to me um, all of these people probably visiting Rhode Island for their first time um, if you if you want anything in, in the way of pizza strips or any uh, Rhode Island delicacy like that from me, Please let me know because I'd be more than happy to uh, to donate something like that to an event uh, to an event like that. I think it'd be really cool um, to do that. And um, you, you can't let them leave without having pizza strips. I think it's a I think it's I think it's a state <laughs> law. Go. And if it's not, it ought to be. So um, so uh, I'll remind very kind of you, and I'll remind I'll remind you about that too, as as uh, you know, as it gets a little closer too, um, because that's that's really cool that that's happening. Um, you mentioned uh, uh, Don Malarkey, and you know it, it, he was very was very public towards the end about his struggles with post traumatic stress and things like that, and um, you know it was not an easy thing for the guys to talk about. Um, I know Winters had mentioned um, an episode that he had had shortly after the war. Um, did your dad struggle at all with, 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 um, post-traumatic stress, uh, any, anything like that from the war is it, or is it something maybe he, one of the things he didn't talk about very much? Well, I'm not quite sure if he did or not. I never really saw anything about him struggling with it. Um, and if you remember when we were, uh, at the Johnston at the Johnston Historical Center, and I was playing a few clips of my father, and um, there was gunfire in the background. Yeah, right, right, right. Remember right. that? Yeah. Well, he didn't flinch. Right. So, so he certainly did. He certainly didn't have any. He certainly didn't have any overtly. Uh, you yeah. Know, he, he he didn't respond. You know, like you know, he there was no violent twitch or anything like that. So. I don't know. He was very balanced, I guess, and he had a way of, of whether it was just suppressing any of that awful stuff he saw, or just his nature of move on. Right. And, uh, so he was very, very fortunate. And uh, 
but yeah, Don, you know, Don and many other guys, you know, struggled with that. And I don't know if you've seen that book, Saving My Enemy. Have you saw that book? I have not. I have not. Yeah, that that is a great story about uh, Don Malarkey and a guy named uh, Fritz. And uh, Fritz was part of, I think, the German youth. And uh, they met each other in Bastogne somewhere after the series came out. Uh, Sergeant Billy Maloney was putting together an event, bringing out some of the Band of Brothers to an event in, in Germany and Bastogne, and he invited a couple of German soldiers to come along. He thought, well, this could be a good idea. So he invited them to come along, and they all got a chance to meet. Well, Fritz and Don had a chance to meet plus, and they developed a great friendship for the remaining years that they were here. And it helped each other process what they were suffering through. Don naturally for killing a lot of Germans. And Fritz for, I guess, you know, he was one of, in the Hitler youth type of uh, thing. And, um, and, you know, how could he be hoodwinked like that to be following somebody as crazy as Adolf Hitler? So, they, yeah, it's a great book. It's a great story, you know. And one of the interesting side notes is that Fritz's children come to our events now. Oh, wow. And, Fascinating. Um, yeah. Matthias and Volker and their wives come, and it's great. We met them at the Portland reunion probably five or six years ago. And I remember Marianne Malarkey saying, uh, you know, that the, the German, the kids are coming, and Volker and Matthias and their wives, and they're a little apprehensive about coming to our reunions. And I just said, well, gee whiz, they, they certainly don't have to be apprehensive. Right. You know, it's not like right. they it wasn't them fighting in the war, and hey, the war's over. So, so anyway, I think we all did a great job of embracing them and uh, making them feel comfortable. So it's great to have them. Uh, continuing to come to our reunions and, and they're it, part of it now. One thing I really want to make sure I ask you before, uh, before we have to end the, uh, the interview in a little bit, um, there's a story in the book that's not in the show um, about uh, your dad befriending this, uh, like a, a young boy, I think. Um, I don't know if it was, in, I can't remember if it was in Germany or if it was in uh, Holland or one of the other countries, um, and I can't remember. I want. I can't remember the boy's name, but it was Malucci or Malucci or so, yeah, it was something like that. It and, and it was you know it was mentioned in the book. Did your dad ever talk about this this person? And are they still alive? Like I'm well, very no, that's curious a great question because you know I often thought think about that. You know I. Um, you know, I get back to Europe, you know, I, I, I did, let's see, I just got back uh, a week ago or so on my third trip, my third Band of Brothers tour, and, I'm, and I get a chance to learn, uh, close the loop, let's say, on some stories here and there, and that's, that's one that passes my mind every once in a while. I certainly, I certainly would love to, um, to learn that one, and, and actually, you know, now that you reminded me, 
in the series, uh, they talk about when they're in Hagenau. And Webster, my dad is like flipping candy bars and Cobb is railing on my dad. You know, you're going to be sending these to your rear echelon guys. And and then Frank Bracani comes in and and my dad said, um, hey, Webb, let's get out of here. I got to go blast the building. Do you remember that scene? Right, I do so very I, well, yes. I meet this young kid, Tom Fry. Uh, on social media and he sends me a message and he says hey i'm from Hagenor," and i said hey, you wouldn't happen to know where um that building my father blasted do you and he said well actually i do i said no way so he says yeah i do um so if you read webster's book or if you read webster's passage it's called the undesirable neighbor webster wrote a bunch of vignettes and then compiled them in the book form and the book wasn't published until the mid to late 90s after he'd long since passed away but if you read his book and if you read that vignette and you connect the dots it's like why didn't i think of that so right across from op1 uh, they talk about this building that um, every morning and every night their shutters would go up and their shutters would go down. And they said, you know, if we can look across and we can see their shutters are going up and down, they can certainly see our shutters are going up and down. So they had to call the, um, they called company headquarters and, and down trotted a blighty Portuguese named Luz with a bazooka. So, so anyway, <laughs> I was kind of hoping that that particular scene was going to get in there because whenever he said, I'm going to blast the building, I said, oh, man, this is going to be great. But but they didn't right, show I it. know. But anyway. But that's great. How great that you got to get to actually. Yeah. Go so and what had that. happened was the young kid, Tom, OP1 isn't there anymore because, you know, the streets change and it's along the river and. But he went right directly across the river, and there's a couple houses there. So he went to two houses, and he knocked on the one door, and he met this little old lady who was a young girl back in 1944-45. And uh, so he started asking her questions about, about, you know, the war. And she said, well, actually, you know, when the, the Germans came in, they threw us out, so we had to go live someplace else. And... So she said, well, what happened when he came back? And she said, well, we came back and the inside of the place was blasted to bits. So anyway, so that was the building my Amazing. father blasted. That's yeah. incredible. So that and, it, incredible. and it's interesting so, to just, you know, connect the dots on that one. All right. So so since you mentioned being over over to Europe, um, talk, talk a little just very briefly before we go. Tell everyone listening about the uh, the Ambrose tours that you've been a part of, um, you know, um, where people can find out more about that. If that's something they're interested in doing, um, you know, it's it's the trips sound amazing. So uh, maybe just talk a little bit about that. And then I know you have um, a little piece of audio that you want to play before we sign off. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very fortunate to be able to travel with Ambrose. You know, my buddy, Chris Anderson, he's the senior historian and he knows the guys better than anybody who's doing this right now. 
he grew up around the guys like I did in a sense. He met all the guys. He went to their homes. He came to reunions. And when when he was doing this these tours, he would actually bring the guys on tour. Several. He would bring two guys on each tour. But Chris does a great job. And I remember um, we were having lunch. He's been a dear friend for over 20 years. And so we're having lunch one day up in Boston at the Warren Tavern. And he said, hey, when are you going to come on one of my trips, you cheap bastard? I said, I said, well, you need somebody to do stuff, and I can do stuff. So, um, so anyway, I go as the tour manager, and he's the historian, and um, and you know, as we go along, I tell stories. He'll he'll just say, hey, George, tell the story about your dad and so and so, and I'll I'll tell the story, and then, you know, I let him do uh, the ninety nine point nine percent of the the storytelling and he does such a great job. And so what we do on those particular trips is we start, uh, there's, you can start in Tokoa and you can go up Curahi and everything it has to offer there. The amazing people in Tokoa that keep the history alive. And, and then we fly over to, um, to England and we go to where they trained in Alborn and spend a couple days there and go over to Normandy and St. Mary Glees and St. Marie de Mont and, then after that, we head up to, excuse me, we head up to um, uh, Arnhem, uh, where uh, they jumped in the Market Garden, and then over to Bastogne and into uh, Luxembourg, uh, Germany, and Austria. So we, it's a 14-day retrace the footsteps of the Band of Brothers. It's, uh, you know, if you've if you've seen the book, if you've read the book and seen the series, and you have a passion for history. Um, it's, it's a really cool tour. Uh, the great thing too, about my buddy, Chris, is he touches on other parts, other significant parts within World War II, uh, that we will, uh, bump into as well. Uh, one of the coolest things we do too, is we go to Pegasus Bridge where, uh, Major John Howard, um, secured the bridges there at like, just a little bit after midnight on June 6th of 44. So we stop there and uh, we go to some of Patton's uh, exploits as well. And like I said, we go all the way to Eagle's Nest. So it's a, it's a great trip. It's a two-week trip. And uh, so I've done three of them this year. And uh, I tell the guests, when you get home is when you can rest, <laughs> because there's not a lot of resting on this trip. It's a, it's a jam-packed tour, and um, I'm just happy that uh, I'm able to play a small part in it. And typically, when we get about halfway through, when we're in Arnhem, the, uh, the NH Hotel provides me with a conference room, and I'm able to do something very similar to what you had seen at the Johnston Historical society there. I do my Band of Brothers presentation. So I've been very fortunate to to share that when I'm in Europe. And then I, I do it around the country as well. This past year, I've had a pretty crazy busy year. I've been to Wisconsin and St. Joseph, Missouri and New Orleans and Montana. And uh, so, yeah, it's been a busy year between the trips uh, with Ambrose and then my own private speeches, it's been uh, it's been really rewarding for me to share these messages with people who we're all pretty much like-minded and share 
share the messages that we can glean from all of these men and women that save the world. Well, I think it's fantastic, George. You're in, and of course, I've seen your presentation firsthand, and it's great. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure I put all the relevant links in the show notes to the tours and to um, uh, uh, to your uh, your presentation, different YouTube videos, things like that. Um, and uh, if you want, play play that as a great clip that's part of your presentation. Um, if you want to play that for the people listening, just your dad talking about the war and what it meant to him and everything. Certainly, here it go. goes. And that kind of encapsulates what that time frame meant to my dad. Um, I think people who serve in combat can certainly understand that sentiment. Well, George, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's been such a great conversation. I really do appreciate it because you are such a busy guy. Um, and it's been really great talking about your dad uh, for, for the last hour. Um, and, uh, I hope, I hope that you won't be a stranger. If you're ever in the area, please stop in the bakery and say hello. Um, but until then, um, I hope you, uh, have continued success with your tours and, and, and your speaking engagements and, and all of that. Well, Hey, thank you so much, Eric. And thank you for having me on. This is the just listening podcast. I gotta go. Go where? We just got here. I got that thing. I gotta go. With pizza artist Eric John. Uh, wait a couple of minutes. We'll all leave together, okay? This way you don't go out like a bunch of hobos staggering out one at a time. Please like, share, and subscribe.